you got your Bible, Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, as we look at how to tackle 10 timeless truths that will truly transform your life. 10 truths that the Lord gives us in Hebrews chapter 13 that will revolutionize the way we think about everyday living. It's, it's about our responsibility. After understanding the identity and ministry of the Messiah, this now is your responsibility. If Christ is all-sufficient and Christ is all-supreme, which he is, and the right of Hebrews has proven that, this is how we see that Christ is supreme and sufficient in your life. You live out your life in such a way that others are able to see the primacy of Christ who rules in your life. And that's why when you read the text, you realize, as we said last week, that Proverbs 13, 13 says, don't despise the text, don't despise the word, or you'll be in debt to it. In other words, you'll be destroyed by it if you despise it or look down upon the authority of God's word. And then in Proverbs 23, 23, the Lord says to buy truth and never sell it. Do all you can to obtain that truth. Because if you do, you get wisdom, instruction, and understanding. And those things help you live out the truth of God's holy word. And so it's important that we understand that because listen to what the Bible says in in 1 Peter 2, verse number 15. It says, For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. By doing what is right, and what is right, by, by following what God's word says. You put to silence the ignorance of man. Then over in the book of Titus, Paul says these words. He says, verse 6, Likewise urge the young men to be sensible. In all things show yourselves to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. In other words, live out your belief. Live out your doctrine in such a way that that those who oppose you have nothing bad to say about you. Christ said in Matthew 5, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Well, Hebrews 13 is all about that. It's all about living the kind of life that helps others understand that you truly are looking to Christ as the all-sufficient supreme God who rules over you. So we began last week by looking at point number one, Hebrews 13, verse number one, which simply is respond with love to the needs of others. That's in verses one to three. And so he says, verse number one, let love of the brethren continue. In other words, they were already loving the brethren to some extent, Let it continue. We know that from Hebrews chapter 6, verse number 10, that they've already ministered to one another by showing their love for the Lord. They were showing their love toward one another by serving them. We took you all the way back to Romans chapter 12 to help you understand that Paul says, let love be without hypocrisy. In other words, it must be genuine. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. We are to be actively involved in loving the brethren. Fourteen times we're told to love one another in the New Testament. Paul would say this in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, verse number 9. 
And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. You know, you want to pray for somebody? Pray that their love would abound more and more. Their love for God and their love for one another would overflow. And as you do, you pray that it's done in such a way it's in accord with knowledge and discernment. When Christ said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, back in the book of Hosea, the fourth chapter, the sixth verse, he was saying that because they didn't know him. They didn't understand him. They didn't grasp him. He wants you to understand him. So Paul says, I want you to grow in your love, and I want you to abound in your love. And that love is going to abound when you understand and know God. Because knowing God is knowing the God of love. And to know the God of love allows you to be able to love other people because the love of God has been shed abroad in your heart. And then he says, and discernment. It's important that when you love the brother or the brethren, you love them according to the knowledge of God and you do it with supreme discernment. Discernment flows from the knowledge of God. The ability to discern between what is good and, and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong, discern between what is truth and what is error. In the church today, we have such a lack of discernment. And that lack of discernment comes because we have a lack of knowledge into, in terms of who God is. And because we do, we really can't abound in love for one another because the love for one another flows from our love from the true and living God. Over in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says this, verse number 9. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. <laughs> You're taught by God to love one another. He says, I don't need to write to you about this, because God's already taught you to love one another. He says this, verse 10. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel, excel still more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and to work with your own hands just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Paul wanted them not just to love one another because they were already doing that because they were taught by God, but to excel even all the more. In other words, you can never really love one another enough. And because you need to reach out and minister to one another. So the Bible tells us these words in 1 John chapter 4, verse number 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the satisfaction for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then he says, later on, in verse number 19, he says this, or excuse me, verse number 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. 
There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. There are so many exhortations in the Scripture about loving one another. But the writer of Hebrews makes it very clear that, that if we're going to, to demonstrate to other people around us that Christ is all-sufficient and all-supreme, we're going to continue in brotherly love. We're going to continue in this mode because that shows that we love God. And people need to know that we truly love God. So point number one, respond with love to the needs of others. How? By being committed to brotherly love. That's number one. Number two, by being careful how you treat strangers. That's verse number two. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. How do you respond in love to the needs of others? Well, you're committed to brotherly love. And number two, you're careful how you treat strangers. The writer says, listen, within the assembly, there is brethren. But with outside the assembly... There are strangers, and you are to respond to them, be kind to them, be a lover of strangers. That's what hospitality means, to be a lover of strangers. And so don't just think I'm talking to you in the church, but when you leave the church and you go outside the church, are, are you a lover of strangers? He says, now, now granted, there are some who without even knowing it have entertained angels unaware. We know of Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. We know of Gideon in chapter six, Judges chapter 6. We know of Manoah in Judges chapter 13. They had no idea that they were entertaining angels unaware. And it doesn't mean that you love strangers because they might be an angel, all right? We don't know that. They might be. But some have entertained angels unaware. But, but be a lover of strangers. Are you that way? When, when you go to when you go to the, a restaurant or when you go to, go to work or when you're uh, in the mall or when you interact with strangers, what's your, what's your response to them? How do you interact with them? Are you truly a lover of strangers? The Bible says that we're to be good to all men, especially those of the household of faith, Galatians 6.10. So we're to be good to the people in the household of faith. We, we understand that. But we're to be good to all men as well. And that would include even those who might even be our, our enemies. Over in Matthew chapter, chapter 5, our Lord says this in verse number 44, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. How do you know how do you know that you're a son of your Father in heaven? How do you prove to people that you're a son of your Father in heaven? Not that you love your neighbor, 
that you love those who love you. Jesus says, that's really not a big deal. Everybody loves those who loves them. I mean, come on, how hard is that? But if you love your enemy, guess what? Now you're proving you're a son of your Father in heaven. In other words, because you love the enemy, because you love the stranger, because you love those who might be against you, you're going to return good for evil, right? Now people know you're a true child of God. Every enemy loves his own favorite enemy. But not everybody loves those who come against them on a regular basis. We love those who are kind to us. We love those who love us. We love those who are, who are fun-loving people. But what about your enemy? What about those who are, who are unkind to you? What's your response? If you're unkind to them, you're not proving yourself to be a son of your Father in heaven. Because you want to love them as the Lord did. That's, that's what makes our, our Lord's ministry so unique, Right? And how many times have we told you over the years that our Lord is, is just so, so incredible in what he does? Remember in, in the Garden of Gethsemane when he, when he cuts off a, uh, uh, the high priest's servant's ear, Malchus, and, and, he, and he heals heals his ear? Remember that? Here, here, here are these 600 temple police and, and Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes coming to, to obtain the Lord. And they, they cross over the Kidron Brook and ascend up the Mount of Olives. And they know right where Jesus is because Judas knows where he is. And, and Judas is going to take him there. And, and they get there and Jesus meets them at the, at the garden entry. And he asks them, whom do you seek? They say, Jesus and Nazarene, a term of disdain. And Jesus says what? I am. And they all fall over backwards. All of them, all 800 of them. Maybe, maybe it was even 1,000 of them. Don't know the exact number. But they all get back up again. And Jesus says, I'm sorry, wh- whom do you seek? And they say the same thing, Jesus of Nazarene. And of course, Peter's there, and, and Peter wants to go to war, and he thinks, wow, if Jesus can speak a word and everybody falls over, we can win this battle. So he whips out a sword and, and slices off the earlobe of the high priest servant. His name is Malchus, according to the Gospel of Luke. And of course, Luke records the healing of the year. Jesus heals it. Why? Because those who preached at the beginning of his ministry, love your enemies, he loved his enemies even to the very end, right? He loved them even to the very end. The Bible says in, in, uh, in John chapter 13, having loved his own, he loved them all to the end. That includes Judas, the son of perdition, the one who would betray him, right? He loved them all to the very end. He loved them all completely. He loved them all perfectly. That's what he did. And he loved Judas, who wasn't his enemy. So when Christ on the Sermon on the Mount says, listen, if you love your enemies, you're going to prove yourself to be a child of mine. Because that's what I do. And you need to do the same. So conjure up in your mind your, your worst enemy. I know you have one. Just conjure him up right now, right now. Ask yourself, what can I do to reach out and love this person today? Return good for evil. Demonstrate a forgiving spirit. Demonstrate a gracious attitude. 
Look at some way that I can, in a very tangible way, meet their needs. To show them that I'm not angry, I'm not bitter. But I really wanted them to understand that I love them. You see, responding to others in love goes way beyond just loving the brethren. It talks about loving strangers as well. And that would include even our enemies who are against us. That's what we do. That's how we show others that we are truly see Christ as sufficient and supreme in our lives. And, and then thirdly, it says this in uh, Hebrews chapter 13. He says, verse number 3, Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. So he said, listen, truth number one, respond with love to the needs of others by being committed to brotherly love, by being careful how you treat strangers, and by being concerned about those who are suffering. Are you concerned with those who are suffering? We know that some of them were already in prison. Back in chapter 10, it tells us in verse number 32, they were already suffering to some degree. He says, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession, possession excuse me, a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward. They were already doing this. So he's just reminding them to be concerned for those who, who are going through suffering by interceding for them, by meeting their needs, by visiting them, by, by taking care of them, by watching out for them. So that's what we do. That's what the body of Christ is all about. We all share the same body. All right? We're all part of the body of Christ. We all have the same Father, right? And we serve Him and honor Him and love Him. And, and, and that's manifested itself by the way we, we treat others. Listen, we, we told you before, in the, in, the, in the physical realm, your children are the windows to the condition of your family, right? How many times have we said that over the years? Your children, how they live, how they behave, are a window to the condition of your family. Well, the same is true in the spiritual realm. That all of us as children of God are the windows to the condition of our spiritual family, right? So when people peer through you a window, they're able to see the condition of the family at this local assembly. And so therefore, you will respond to one another with love. Reach out to those who are in need. Be a lover of strangers. Take care of those you don't even know. Minister to them in a very special way. You know, one of the things we, we've taught our children over the years is that when someone begs for money, don't give them money, but buy them a meal. Buy them, buy them food. They want money for food, but instead, buy them a meal. To be able to take to them something that they need tangibly, right? And so, instead of giving them money that you don't know how they're going to spend it, you can buy them a meal. Take it to them. They're a stranger. Because you want to be a lover of strangers, would it be that that's the way all of us would be? But especially in our love one toward another. So think about this. In the very first point, realize that you guys, 
every one of you are, are a window to the condition of this spiritual family at 1432 West Puente Avenue. When people see you, they're looking into the family, the condition of our family. And what do they see? Point number two. After you reaffirm your love for one another, or excuse me, respond to love with love with, to the needs of others. Number two, reaffirm your loyalty to marriage. Reaffirm your loyalty to marriage. Now, why is it that the writer of Hebrews, in a book about the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ, is going to throw in the topic of marriage? Why would he do that? Why would he throw that in there? This is what he says. He says, verse 4, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Interesting. They would take the topic of marriage and give it one verse and address it. Because he wants you to reaffirm your loyalty to a God-given divine institution. God gave marriage. We didn't invent marriage. We didn't invent weddings. God is the divine inventor of this great institution of marriage. And therefore, he wants to reaffirm, us to reaffirm our loyalty to what God has designed the family to be. A marriage that's undefiled. A marriage that's pure and holy before our God. And so as you think about that, you begin to realize the importance of marriage. And we've told you over the years that that marriage is so crucial that it's the union that truly is a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. It's a pictorial union. It pictures Christ's relationship to the church. And that's why, that's why marriages fail so badly, because we refuse to paint that picture. Every day you get up, it's, it's like you've got a brand new canvas, right? And you're painting on that canvas a picture of Christ's love for the church. And you do it primarily with your children, right? So the conversation you have at home, the interaction you have with your wife and your husband, how you treat one another is, is painting some kind of picture to your children of what the condition of marriage is supposed to look like. Christ's love for his church. Every day you get up, you got a brand new canvas, a brand new slate. You get a chance to paint that picture. Everywhere you go, you're in the process of painting a picture of Christ's love for the church. Ephesians 5 tells us, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her. So every day, as my children watch me, as gentlemen, they, your children watch you, right? My, my children want to know, how do I give myself up for my wife? How do I sanctify my wife? How do I satisfy my wife? How do I supply the needs of my wife? That, that's what they're looking for. They might not be able to articulate that, But believe me, every day they are watching, they are waiting to see the kind of picture 
that's being painted before them. I, I want my children to have great marriages, right? I want them to, to, to love one another. I want them to, to give the, the men, to give themselves away for their, for their wives. Well, if I'm not doing that for my wife, they, they don't have that example, that model to follow. And am I great at that? No. But I'm working progressively toward that to, to love my wife as Christ loved the church because marriage is a pictorial union. And if you understand this, primarily, you understand that this divine institution that God designed is designed to show the world Christ's love for his church. I want my children to know how much they are loved by Christ. How do they best know that? By demonstrating my love for my wife unconditionally. Marriage is a pictorial union. And every day you wake up, you have a brand new slate to make sure that you paint it in a proper perspective for your children, for a watching world. They may know that you truly love one another. So the writer of Hebrews says, reaffirm your loyalty to marriage because marriage is to be held in, in high honor. It's to be it should be the most precious thing there is. So make sure that you live in such a way that everybody knows it's precious to you. But marriage is not only a, a pictorial union, but marriage is also a, a, a permanent union. Did you know that? Marriage is a permanent union. You don't marry somebody for a while. You marry them forever on this planet, right? You don't marry them for a while. Your marriage is forever. It's a permanent union. What God has joined together, Matthew 19, let no man divorce, let no man divide, let no man separate, right? It's something that, that God says, this is permanent. A man shall, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. That, that, that word cleave is a, is, a word that, is a word that speaks of permanence, not temperance, or something that's temporary. It's forever. And marriage is to be a permanent union. And if I truly love my wife unconditionally, as Christ loved the church, I'm I'm not going to divorce my wife. I'm not going to leave my wife. I'm not going to abandon my wife. I'm going to stay with her through thick and thin because I want to satisfy her. I want to sanctify her. I want to supply all of her needs. I want to protect her and watch over her. And so I'm not going to abandon her because marriage is a permanent union. God designed it that way. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Be glued together with her, right? When you become married, one plus one is one. And one is an indivisible number. You can't divide one by one, except it's just one. It's always going to be one. And so therefore, it's a, it's a permanent union where you come together, you cleave to one another, and you're stuck together for the rest of your life. So not only is, is marriage to be held in honor because it's a, it's a pictorial union, but because it's a permanent union. Number three, it's a predetermined union. Did you know that? Your marriage is predetermined in eternity past. Do you think that God was just looking around for somebody that you could, you could hook up with and, and be married to? Man, I don't know who I'm going to choose for this guy. Man, this guy's kind of way out there. And man, I hope I can find somebody out there, some woman that will, will at least attach herself to this guy so I can put them together somewhere down the road. No, that's not how God does it. 
It's a predetermined union. What God has joined together, let no man divorce. God joins you together. When did God join you together? Think about that. When did God join you together? Last week? Did you think, well, last week, we, 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 these two should get together? No, no, no. This was a predetermined plan. Like your salvation was predetermined. This is all a part of the plan of God. And this is so good because, you know, I've been doing, I, I've been doing marriage counseling for 40 years. Can you believe that? 40 years I've been doing this. It's a long time in anybody's book, right? And, and so getting couples together and talking to them, been doing premarital counseling, same amount of time, 40 years. I started as a college pastor when I was 22 years old, right? And I had 75 students in my, in my college class in, in McLean, Virginia. And I, and I was teaching them about marriage and teaching them about, about what it means to get married and helping them understand the, the importance of marriage and, and, and counseling them through the process. At the same time, I was, I was counseling young married couples. And so for all these years, I've been trying to help people understand, look, this is a predetermined union. God designed you to be together. So when you think about that, think about it this way. You, are, you're, you're, you get up this day and say, God hand chose you specifically for me. Do you know that that revolutionizes the way you think about your spouse, right? They've been hand chosen. You say, well, wait a minute. I, I, I married an unbeliever. Well, that's part of God's predetermined plan because it's part of God's decree. It might not be God's desired will, but it is his decreed will, right? So you can't say, well, I married an unbeliever, so I'm going to divorce the unbeliever and marry a believer because God wants me to be not unequally yoked, but yoked together with a, with a believer. No, you, you can't do that. You can't break one of God's commands to fulfill another command. That's, that's called sin. It's called iniquity, called, called transgression. You can't do that. But if you know that the unbeliever you're married to is a predetermined union, you wake up every day thinking, wow, this is a day that I can really demonstrate to them the love of Christ. And God has put us together and God in a sovereign will. This is what God wants for my life at this point. And so I'm going to serve my God and honor my God and, and do all I can to, to put him on display to this spouse of mine that doesn't know the Lord. What a ministry, right? Peter talks about that in 1 Peter 3, verses 1 to 7 those who are married to unbelieving spouses. But just because marriage is a predetermined union and you marry outside of the desired will of God, but always within the decreed will of God because God consciously causes or, or, or willingly permits certain things to happen, right? This is still God's predetermined will, predetermined union for you you understand that, things can begin to change. See, we get married because we want our needs met. That's not why you get married, right? You get married because your marriage is a picture of Christ's love for the church. You, you, you get married because it's a, it's, it's a permanent union. It's a, it's a predetermined union. God is behind all this. It's, it's designed. So the writer of Hebrews says, Hold marriage in highest esteem. Honor it above all. It is so important to realize this. And then he says, and then, not he says, but I say, it's also a, a, a purposeful union. Marriage is a purposeful union. There's a purpose behind your marriage. Genesis 2, verse number 18. It's not good for man to be alone. So what did God do? God created Eve for Adam. 
there was a purpose behind marriage. Because marriage is a purposeful union. It's not good for man to be alone. Adam was all alone. Until one day God said, number the animals, name the animals. So he did. Mr. and Mrs. Cow. Mr. and Mrs. Horse. Mr. and Mrs. Dog. He began to realize that there was no Mrs. of Mr. Adam. God's very, very good at what he does. He's excellent. So God didn't tell him, Adam, it's not good for you to be alone. I'm going to create for your wife. No, Adam, it's not good to be alone. So count and name the animals. And he realized that every animal had a corresponding part that was a female or male. But there wasn't one for him. So God put him to sleep took one of his ribs and created Eve and fashioned her for him. She was specifically fashioned for him because she would fulfill the perfect purpose for Adam. You know, I, I, every, every day I, I wake up, I, I wake up next to my wife and I think, wow, God fashioned her for me. <laughs> I am such a blessed man because God knew exactly what I needed. And he fashioned her specifically for me. Because he knew it wasn't good for me to be alone, so he fashioned a perfect helpmate, a suitable helper. Because marriage is a purposeful union. On top of that, marriage is a, a precious union. The two shall become one flesh. There is this interdependency in a marriage that is so precious because your wife has what you don't have and you as a husband have what she doesn't have and God fashions you and, and puts you together and it becomes the most precious union on the planet. But on top of that, marriage is a provisional union. A provisional union. That is, we are designed to provide for the other. In other words, we are able to do for the other what the other couldn't do necessarily for themselves. And that's why in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse number 7, the husband is to honor his wife as his most prized possession. Or his prayers will be hindered. In other words, not only is she precious, but she is one who truly you provide for. And when you go into your marriage knowing that today you're providing for your wife, no longer are you self-absorbed. Because you're looking for ways to, to, to minister and to tackle the need for her. And vice versa, for the wife to look at the husband and say, I'm not here for him to do this or that. I'm here to minister to him in a way that will honor the Lord. How can I best do that? Why? Because this is a provisional union. How can I best provide for my wife, my husband, that he cannot have outside of me? And you seek to provide in unique and special ways. So marriage is a pictorial union, if you've been following. A permanent union, a predetermined union, a purposeful union, a precious union, a provisional union, a protective union. First Corinthians 7 talks about husbands and wives not abstaining from sexual relations. Why? Because if you do, you give time for the devil to take hold of your marriage. So you only do... 
you only abstain from sexual intimacy for just a brief time and only for one purpose, to pray. Why? Because your body's not your own. Hers is not hers and yours is not yours. It's a protective union. God designed marriage to be protected. And you protect it by providing one for another. And then lastly, I think it's number eight if you're counting. It's eight even if you're not counting. That marriage is a pleasurable union. That's last on the list, not first. It's a pleasurable union. And that's why the Bible says in Hebrews 13, marriage is to be honored among all. Not just some, but everybody. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. In other words, he makes it very clear that pleasure in marriage is done in the realm and confines of God's divine institution. Anything outside of that will be judged because God designed the marriage bed for one particular purpose, and that is for sexual union to happen only within the context of marriage, not outside the context of marriage. Because he says this. He says, for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. That's a strong statement. Because God does do that. The fornicator, the adulterer, he will judge. The fornicator is any kind of sex sin outside of marriage, right? The adulterer is coveting another man's wife or having sex even though you're married with someone else. So he's talking about fornicators and adulterers. Any kind of sex sin done outside the marriage bed is defiled. Within the marriage bed, it's undefiled. Outside of that, it's defiled, and God will judge. 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, Ephesians 5, Revelation 21, Revelation 22. God gives lists of those who do not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And then those lists are always fornicators and adulterers. It does not mean that if you have been an adulterator or you have been a fornicator, that you're not going to go to heaven because 1 Corinthians 6 says, but such were some of you, but you were washed. You were justified. You were sanctified. See, God forgives sin, right? God forgives sinners. That's what God does. So we have the hope of God's forgiveness that comes only from him. But the important thing is, is that how often do we, do we really truly reaffirm our loyalty to our husband, to our wife, to our marriage? That is so important. My wife and I were driving home yesterday with our children, well, the only two we have left at home, A.J. and Avery. And we just left uh, a birthday party for one of our grandchildren, Emma. And marveled at what God has done in our family, with our, with our children and their spouses. To be able to sit back and say, you know what? I love, I love Rachel and Teresa like I love Ashley, Aaron, Anna, and Avery. To realize that God hand chose 
Rachel, for Cade, and Teresa for Drew. Now, it's not easy marrying into our family, especially marrying one of the men of our family. We're all alpha males in our family. So it's not easy marrying into our family, but Rachel and Teresa were the perfect fit for our family. And then I think of, of Tim and, and Franco and Dustin, all uniquely different. Those three guys are really different, but they fit so well like hand in glove in our family. Reaffirms God's predetermined union. Reaffirms that God is, is, is purposely choosing and directing and, and working all those things out. And my wife and I were driving home last night thinking, God is just so good to us to be able to put those, those couples together in unique and special settings and unique and special ways. And we anticipate what, what God will do with, with, with AJ one day down the road and what God will do with Avery one day down the road and how God will bring the perfect young man for Avery and the, and the perfect young lady for, for AJ that will fit hand in glove within the, the entire realm of our family. And to see what God has done helps us reaffirm once again our loyalty to marriage. Because God is just so incredibly great at what he does. And my prayer for you and, and, and for me is that every, every day we would wake up saying, Lord, what a day. Today I get to paint this beautiful picture of your love for the church. So my children can see it, my grandchildren can see it, my neighbors can see it. And as I, I paint the picture, I, I just, I just want to be able to, I, I just want you to know, Lord, I, I, I'm here forever. I'm not leaving. Nothing's going to stop my love. Nothing's going to stop me from extending my provision, my care for my wife. Because way back when, before time ever began, you chose this person for me. And you couldn't have chosen anybody better. Perfect union. Precious union. That God had given her to me. And then to have the children that we have. How God has blessed us. What a precious thing. And so, one of the truths you're going to have to tackle, if you have a bad marriage, is to reaffirm your loyalty to that marriage. And no matter what, you realize that God has put you together. And you can hold that marriage in high honor. Because God designed it. And every day people are watching what it is you're doing with that husband, that wife. They're looking how you speak to them, how you respond to them, how you reach out to them. They're watching. They're looking. And they're learning. They're learning about marriage in the most intimate setting. So when we reaffirm our loyalty to marriage, we are saying, Lord, we are in this forever because you designed it. You put us together. And we are here for your glory and for your honor. I'm not here to get my needs met. If I do, that's great. But it's not about meeting my needs. It's about how can I best meet the needs of the one you've given to me because I'm going to love them. And love is an action verb that puts everything into action and serves my husband or my wife. When you do that, you've begun to tackle 
Truth number two. Truth number one, we respond with love toward one another every single day. Not just when we gather together on Wednesdays and Sundays, but all throughout our lives. Because each and every one of you is a window that shows everybody else outside the assembly the condition of our spiritual family. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Chance we have to to gather together. What a blessing. What a joy it is to know that your word speaks to every one of us. Our prayer, Lord, is that you would bring these truths home in all of our hearts. And that, Lord, we'd manifest your beauty, your glory, you as our God. As we leave this place today, Lord, may we leave energized to live only for you and not for ourselves. Because you truly are all that matters. So we anticipate, Lord, what you're going to do today, this week, and the rest of our lives until you come again as you most surely will. In Jesus' name, amen.